Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I'm the Events and Lectures Programmer here. I'm delighted to introduce the discussion Black Art and Activism, which sits as part of our public programme for our current exhibition, America After the Fall, Painting in the 1930s. This event asks the potential agency of art, what, what the potential agency of art is in challenge, challenging racial prejudice and uses the 1930s in America as a starting point, a period when African-American artists such as Aaron Douglas and William Johnson actively engaged with issues around race. Is it the responsibility of artists today to challenge global and national issues of racial prejudice? Can art and spaces for art contribute to an ongoing dialogue between visual culture and activism in the context of racial prejudice? How do artists see their role? And can art be an effective vehicle for protest? So joining us to chair tonight's discussion is Dr. Michael McMillan, who is a writer, play, playwright, artist, curator, and scholar of Vincentian migrant parentage. His own practice explores migration, identity, gender, sexuality, and hidden histories through ethnography, material culture, oral history, performance texts, installation, and audiovisual media. His plays have been produced by the Royal Court Theatre, Channel 4, and BBC Radio 4 Drama, and his curatorial work includes the critically acclaimed The West Indian Front Room at the Jeffrey Museum in 2005 and 6, My Hair, Black Hair Culture, Style and Politics in 2013, Doing Nothing is Not an Option in 2015, and No Colour Bar, Black British Art in Action, 1960 to 1990 in 2016. Michael is currently Associate Lecturer in Cultural and Historical Studies at the London College of Fashion and is a Research Associate with the Visual Identities in Art and Design Research Centre at the University of Johannesburg. So, without further ado, I would like to welcome and hand over to introduce tonight's panel, Dr. Michael McMillan. Thank you, Amy. Welcome. Um, I'm really not trying to kind of be hallowed by the space we're in, with this whole gold, gold leaf on top of us, in a sense, and being in the Royal Academy. Um, we have just seen the America After the Fall exhibition, um, and it raises a whole series of questions. For me, it's kind of why doing this exhibition at this moment because it signals the 1930s, and many people have talked about this moment as a recycling of the 1930s. But the exhibition is more than that. I recommend seeing it. It's, it's small, but it's very, very powerful. And race is, is in there, but it's not simply race. There are lots of kind of narratives and icons kind of going on. And in talking with my colleagues here on the panel, we were talking about how gothic it was how it kind of contests a lot of ideas of what you might think of the 1930s. Sexuality, race, class, um, the Middle West, are all mixed together, but in a very kind of um, iconic way. And we might want to kind of take up some, some of those questions in thinking about this idea of black art and activism um, tonight. I'm also conscious of standing here and how formalized this is. And I want to kind of subvert that because actually we want to make this quite informal in a way, but attend to the question at hand. Um, 
and thinking about black art and activism. And is that why we're here? And is this why we're here and I'm here? Because it's black art. Am I a black artist? Is it because I'm black? What is black? Raises a whole series of questions for me and I think something that we want to kind of pick up as well. That I will, we will return to. Um, but I, it's not me going to be talking. I'm just cheering. Um, I'm really here quite honoured to be with three esteemed artists. Um, I was thinking of the introduction that Amy gave, and when you kind of write these things and then you hand it out, you don't think, think about it's going to be read out. And in a way, it was kind of almost a bit embarrassing because now I'm going to introduce the artist here. And so we kind of decided how we might do this. Each artist is going to kind of show some images. Um, they're going to talk about their images, but they're also going to talk about their practice and how these images might be situated in terms of their practice and how that is developed. But also we're kind of thinking at the background this question, it's right at the back of us, black art and activism. And we will kind of return to this again and again. But first of all, um, and we're kind of taking a kind of generational gaze as it were, I'm gonna ask Sonia Boyce to uh, talk first. Um, I'm going to sit down, if you don't mind, let me sit down. Sonia and I go back, God, to BHS. We, we both kind of were teenagers and had a Saturday job in Oxford Street in uh, British home stores, former British home stores. Sonia began practicing from that moment. Yeah, and you. You, you were um, working at the Royal Court. Royal I was Court at the Royal Court, yeah. I was doing my thing at the Royal Court and stuff at that moment. Um, and if we can think about the 70s and 80s, there was a cultural kind of renaissance, a revolution going on at that moment. We're born here, we're coming of age, we're rebelling almost. It's the 70s, it's, it's Pan-Africanism, moment of radical black politics. The 13, the 13 black young people who got killed Cross. in New Cross. Um, so it's a charged moment, and into this, there are a number of kind of artists who share that diasporic migrant history, and we're beginning to make work here. And you studied fine art, and um, now, I must say, Sonia is now MBA and RA. It's nice to, for us to have titles. I mean, Kimafi's a doc, we'll mention Kimafi in a moment, but it's nice to have these titles. It reflects a sense of achievement that we have. And your work, your practice, Sonia, initially started with drawing, coming out of your practice of fine art and painting, but now is kind of more socially engaged in terms of working, collaborating, working with sound, using improvisations and using workshop. Thank you, Michael and Amy, and also you know, all of the organisation that's gone into making um, this evening possible. And I'm really, really fascinated to hear about um, the works that people are doing and how they, they're thinking through these questions. But before I... I'm just going to slightly address, one, the question of collaboration, and two, the question of titles. Um, Actually, I'll reverse that and say titles first. Uh, so 
one of the main reasons why I happen to be an RA is because of Ian Kirsch, Johnny Barry, who's here, who, who had a, we had a very, very interesting set of conversations about the, the nature of this institution, which actually, I have to admit, and I'm, I'm really sorry for people who work here, was not on my radar, really. Um, and I think that through, through the con talking with Yinka about the, 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 the importance of opening a door and opening the door for someone else to open another door for somebody else, it fits very succinctly, actually, within this question of activism and the various forms of activism that there might be. And you know, what, does it, what does opening a door allow to happen. And, and then the other thing I was going to mention is about this question of collaboration. And one of the people that I've been really most fortunate to kind of work with is Ayn Bailey, who, who's here um, or, on some of the works that I've been doing in the past. And I mean, there are many people that I know in the room who I know very well and who've also you know, been part and parcel of making it possible for, you know, for what the moment that we're seeing now or the resurgence of a, of a moment that we're seeing now. Um, so I wanted to thank all of those people that are in the room as well and those outside of the room. And I, I, I will start by um, just showing uh, this particular image by um, Barclay um, L. Hendricks, who I, I have to say very, very sadly died on, on, on Tuesday. Um, now, um, Barclay uh, was the most extraordinary of painters. Um, this particular work right in the heart of the kind of civil rights movement um, in the US. Um, Barclay's kind of known as, or there was an exhibition a few a couple of years ago called The Birth of the Cool. And for me, a lot of the works that he was making at that, at that moment, um, and, and subsequently, was about how uh, that question of how one self-identifies and self-acknowledges and acknowledges others and really takes on board this idea that we are, uh, as, as a kind of diaspora, you could say, we are there to cherish each other. And the paintings are lovingly made. I mean, I mean, if you ever get a chance to be in front of one of these works, and I know that I've had conversations with Kimafi before about, about Barclay. I mean, also, he was a, a, a really beautiful person. But the works that he has left for us are, are such an amazing testament to the, the question of how one um, reconstitutes oneself and mirrors oneself. Am I making sense when I say that? Um, so I wanted to start. I wanted to start with thinking about um, the question of not only self-representation, but what representation itself can do. That you know, for me, what's what's contained in the series of works, the series of portraits. There's a whole series that he made, particularly around this time in the 70s and 80s and onwards, which is about style, which is about iconography, which is about a certain kind of adamant presence, you could say. So this was the first. We, we were all asked to, to, to send in three images. Uh, so I kind of thought, okay, I'm kind of trying to chart myself through also um, looking at, at, these, at these works. Uh, so the, the, the second work I've, I've brought in is a work by Lubaina Himid, who has an amazing show on at the moment at um, uh, Modern Art Oxford. If you get, if you, it, it's worth a day trip. You will not be. I was crying actually in the show, really. Um, 
Lubaina, um, this work, Freedom and Change, it's actually a detail. It's a, it's a slightly larger piece, which has a, 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 a kind of a group of t two male heads that sit on the floor. And of, within this work, she's making very clear reference to Picasso and to modernism. And it's really interesting, you know, kind of having just come out of that sh the, the uh, American show just now, the the, the synergy between what Lubaina was trying to do in the 80s and subsequently. But of course, if one has to think about the nature of the, the title of that work, Freedom and Change, and it speaks to a particular kind of moment where, you know, the coming of age and, the, and, and having gone through uh, the art school system here in the UK and, and saying, we are, we're ready to change this. We're ready to change something about this scenario that does not fit as well. Um, and, you know, for those people who may or may not know Lubaina Himid, she, was, she has continued, and from that moment until now, to be an enormous champion of um, bringing people together, pushing doors open. I mean, this pushing doors open, I think, might become a bit of an emblem tonight. Um, uh, and say, come on in, you know, this needs to change. Let us do it. Uh, so I really wanted to... Um, to, yeah, to invoke both Barclay and, and Lubaina as being, both of them being instrumental in a variety of ways to me being here in, in this context and us having this kind of conversation at this particular moment. And I know one of the key things uh, that was um, kind of augmenting this uh, talk to happen was the question about Black Lives Matter. And for me, both of those artists um, are kind of really fundamental, as well as a number of people, of course, in the room. Uh, and then my last image is, is one of my works, um, where uh, this work is about 12 years old now, and I was working, uh, as Michael quite rightly said, I've been doing works with, um, uh, that involve improvisation, that involve collaboration, where I get other people to kind of perform. And uh, this work had come out of a, a, a workshop that I'd done in Mexico, in Mexico with a, uh, a, a kind of performance, quite radical performance uh, uh, artist called Guillermo Gomez um, Piena and the Poca Nostra Collective. They're a radical group of performers who are there their, their aim really is to kind of really push the boundaries of, you know, what is the where is the edge of representation, the edges of bodies. Um, and actually, I was there to try and figure out for myself the nature, of, uh, the nature of performance work in my own practice. So I was there to kind of just find out more about performance work. And there was one particular exercise where uh, Richard... Uh, was also um, at the workshop. We were there, we were there for um, about two weeks. Um, and uh, we were all asked, there was a group, about 20 of us, and we were all asked to pair up and then look at the other person and figure out what we might have in common. Now, Richard, as you can see, he's white and male, had long hair, I had locks at that point. I'm very short, people who know me will know that I'm short. So I was trying to was kind of looking at him, trying to figure out what have we got in common. I just figured, oh well, he's got long hair, I've got long hair, and then I plaited my hair into his hair, and we walked around for about 
half an hour trying to figure out, okay, what is, what is our, our awkward relationship with each other? But because I was in the work at that point during the workshop, I wanted to know what it looked like outside of being in it. So I then asked Adelaide Bannerman, who is a curator of performance work, um, whether she would um, take up uh, the position that I had had and allow me to plait her hair into this other person. And they met about three minutes before I did this. So this was this, uh, this piece is called Exquisite Tension. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sonia. I'm overwhelmed with questions, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave them for the moment. Um, because the next artist, and what we can do basically is kind of take up these questions in a kind of general discussion. But the next artist I want to introduce is Dr. Kimafi Donker. I'm just making sure I got that title in there because uh, Kimafi has recently been awarded the doc, uh, PhD from Chelsea College of Arts. But Kimafi is a painter, trained in painting, and has kind of, his practice has kind of been revived in a way, really, in terms of coming to the fore in, in, at this moment. And I've encountered Kimafi's work is painting, but it's really kind of socially engaged. I mean, there are a couple of pieces that are kind of interested in you kind of talking about. But it's socially engaged in talking about kind of black mo key moments, uh, I would say, in for some of the work of black British history, uh, particularly in the 1980s. Um, but without much ado, I'm going to actually, can we give a warm hand to Kimafi, please? So I'm going to um, start off talking about um, this, this work. This work I created in 1987. And it was, um, and it, it's, a, it's a student work. So this was for my um, BA honours degree show at Goldsmiths College, where I just completed, obviously, a three-year course. And um, in the course, while I was, so I, I came to, to Goldsmiths in 1984 and left in 1987, so I did it for three years. And um, while I was there, um, there was a sort of a whirlwind of events which took place in my life, but also in the life of the black community in London. Um, some of which, uh, well, which um, I suppose there was a sort of entwinement because um, part of which included um, Sonia taking a role in, in being one of my tutors while, whilst I was at Goldsmiths. And I think if anyone knows Sonia's work from the 1980s, which is sort of this, um, you know, drawings and using chalks and this kind of stuff, then you can maybe see possible influence, I don't know, in my work um, from, from Sonia. So in terms of maybe thinking about opening doors and leading ways, um, uh, you could you could point to that, but I want to talk a little bit about the subject of the work. So, the subject of the work is um, I didn't really give a title at the time, but the subject of the work is um, the death of a black woman, Cynthia Jarrett, who her son had been arrested in Tottenham in um, in the the autumn of 1985, and he the the police took his keys and went round to his mother's house 
sort of burst or force their way in. And during the encounter in, that took place in, in the house, um, she suffered a heart attack and died. And as a consequence of her death, sort of news spread around the community in Tottenham very quickly in a demonstration, a protest was called, or not even such a protest, maybe just a, 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 a chance to perhaps ask, you know, how could this happen? How can a, a grandmother be, you know, die during a police raid in a home? And then the result of that was a confrontation between the police in Tottenham and the local um, mostly black community brought a farm estate and it's turned into a, a major confrontation, a fight, a battle, if you like. And during the battle, um, a policeman, um, PC Keith Blakelock, lost his life. He was killed um, by some of the, um, you know, the people involved in this, in this, um, this conflict. So, what had that to do with me? At that time, a few, a few days later, a similar event had happened very close to where I lived in Brixton, which is where the Goldsmiths College campus was. So I was living right next to the campus, which is just on the outskirts of Brixton in those days of the art department. And a week earlier, uh, a black woman, another grandmother, had been shot in her home by police, um, Cherry Gross. And um, she was paralyzed immediately from the waist down, a similar sequence of events happen, community gathering at the police station down the road, what's going on turns into a conflict and ends in, in, a, in a, very, a very serious kind of bit of social unrest. And as a result of, of my involvement in um, sort of various community, black community organizations at that time, I became an activist, if you like, in, in the sense of a, an organizer, um, using my artistic skills to, to create pamphlets and, um, and this kind of stuff um, as part of a series of campaigns to try to get justice for various members of the community who felt that you know, um, this, these incidents had been the result of what we now call institutional racism. So, in showing this work for my degree show, what I was kind of doing was not just not only illustrating these, you know, this event because this was in the days before. Nowadays in America, you know, everyone's got their phones. So once this kind of thing happens, you can it gets recorded. You know, we saw the other day of a woman recording her her husband being shot by a policeman right in the car next to her. Those days you didn't have this. So all you have is this is the imagination. So I wanted to speak to that through my work, but also sort of signal my, if you like, um, empathy, uh, um, allegiance, my sense of belonging to this community and to this cause. So then the next work I want to show you, oops, is going back. So this work is, so that work is 1987. This work I produced in 19, in 2005, so it's 20 years after the events which took place in Tottenham, but it's a, re, a rethinking, a reimagining, if you like, a return to the, to, to, the, to the incident, but this time with a sort of more realistic kind of painting um, practice using members of my own family as, as models and, and sort of um, maybe harking back to, to perhaps Renaissance type of, of, of painting. And um, 
I suppose part of the reason of doing this painting like 20 years later was this thought of memory. I was thinking, you know, how much of a, as a country and as a community or a series of communities and individuals do we forget um, incidents, you know, in our history? And in forgetting incidents in our history, are we, as they say, doomed to repeat them? And part of the reason for making this painting and the series which sort of covered that whole series of events in 2005 and, and sort of having it as a solo exhibition of you know, the 20th anniversary was because uh, it was to also to do with young people who I was speaking to were telling me, yeah, the police are harassing us and we're getting the, and the same kind of um, pathology of relationships continuing despite all of the Stephen Lawrence case, et cetera, et cetera, all of the promises that things would be reformed, that there'd be change, no change happened. So I suppose this was a marker in my life to just reflect on all that had, you know, been, been going on. And then just, the, whoops, going the wrong way. The last work I want to talk about is um, this painting which um, I made um, a couple of years ago, I was doing a residency in Johannesburg, in South Africa, obviously. And <coughs> the title of this painting is, um, it's, it's called, um, For Moses Had an Ethiopian Wife, Numbers 12 to 1. And really, it's got s several layers to it, but I'll just deal quickly with just two, with, well, I'll deal with three of them. And I'm taking up a lot of time, but I'm going to try and do this quickly. Okay, so, um, so, so the title refers to, to Moses and his Ethiopian wife, and that's a quotation, that, which is Numbers 12 to 1 in the title. It's a quotation from the Bible. So a lot of my titles of my works are biblical quotations, which are there to help the, the viewer to think about what the painting's about. And there's a sort of a, an iconography of Moses here. I don't know if you know any biblical people here know Moses had famously a sort of divine rod with a snake wrapped around it, which helped him to sort of overcome his foes. And also he had two, two tablets of stone, <laughs> which, um, from which we get the law, uh, the, the law of, 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 of the land, um, thou shalt not kill. We also know that um, Moses came into history as a freedom fighter. He, his first encounter with authority in Africa, where he lived, he, he was an African. We should not forget Moses was born in Africa. Um, his first encounter, and I should say that I'm a Jew as well, so if that doesn't confuse people, I don't know what will. So yeah, Moses was an African and I'm a Jew. So um, his first encounter with authority was um, when he saw an overseer, a slave master, beating a, a, a slave, and Moses kind of stepped in to... to, to um, rescue the slave, and, and, um, and, that, and that was his, and he ended up killing the, the slave master. And in the background, so this is the plain around the area of um, South Africa where I was visiting, and in the background you see this is the, the, um, the silhouette on the horizon of a mine, um, which is called the Marikana mine, and um, in 2013, in the Marikana mine, a, um, a group of workers were massacred by police on, on TV, in fact. 
So it's kind of maybe associating this Moses figure with and his Ethiopian wife with this, um, you know, terror and this conflict between um, between um, the overseers, if you like, and the slaves. And and to show the slave conditions, you can see the this is the conditions that the the workers in South Africa live in. This is what, uh, a painting of the one of the sort of mine, the shacks. And the mine, I should say, is a British-owned mine. It's owned by the Lonmin Mining Company. I hope they're not sponsors of the Royal Academy. <laughs> <laughs> but they do. They, they like to sponsor. Amy's looking worried. She's checking the sponsor list. <laughs> Maybe they won't now. So, yeah. So, yeah, Moses and his Ethiopian wife. You can see maybe they've turned their back on this because perhaps they're thinking about a promised land. So, anyway, I'll hand over to um, Jacob. Thank you very much, Kimafi. And now, Jacob, Jacob V. Joyce? That's right. Jacob V. Joyce. whose practice uh, began with sculpture um, and now works using illustration and zines as well. So I'm going to give over to you now, Jacob, to kind of share something about your image and your practice. Warm hand for Jacob, please. Uh, So I do a lot of spoken words, and I sing in a queer decolonial punk band called Screaming Toenail. And um, I guess because I make zines and I make work about being queer and being uh, a person of colour, um, sometimes I, I feel that I'm invited... Like, I've had a lot of instances where I've been invited to things, and I feel like, why am I here? And, like, I think, this is really odd. You know, I actually had an, an event recently about art and protests at a, a university in London where I realised the person who invited me had no idea who I was, no idea what I was doing there, and it was literally because they needed, they needed someone who was black, um, because um, the event was all, all white, and um, that, that came out, and uh, luckily I was wearing my token jumper. Um, <laughs> so I'm part of a collective called Sorry Feel Uncomfortable, and we formed during a project that was the brainchild of an artist called Barbie Asante, um, and... Uh, 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 art practitioner called uh, Teresa Cisneros and the project was basically in response to a film called Baldwin's Nigger which is a film by Horace Ove who's uh, a really important black British director who should check out lots of his films are, uh, a couple of his films are actually on YouTube um, and the film features James Baldwin coming to the UK and talking about racism in the US um, at a West Indian social centre in North London uh, and Barbie thought, well, you know, so many of these issues in this film really ring true today. Um, I wonder if people aged, I think it was 18 to um, 25, if, the, if these people, if, if young people would have anything to say about it. So she put it out as a call out, and I responded with a, a piece of spoken word. Anyway, we, formed, we, we all met up and realized that all 16 of us, although we were making completely different work, we were facing a lot of the same questions, you know, why are you making it about race, as if race is this homogenous subject. Um, And we were making people feel uncomfortable with our practice. So we were like, you know what, let's form a collective called Sorry You Feel Uncomfortable um, so that we don't have to say that. Um, (laughs) And we realized as a collective, we kind of were making work that was quite um, 
uh, belligerent uh, and sassy. Um, and it was kind of often making white people, even white people inside of the collective were uncomfortable because we were talking about things that need to be spoken about, which sometimes make people feel uncomfortable. But we realized we were being invited to um, different institutions somewhat tokenistically. So we had a residency at the Welcome Collection and it really felt like to have a, a collective that are making critical work about institutions and about colonialism to have us in the Welcome Collection doesn't make sense because the Welcome Collection is, um, the, the room that we were in, the Medicine Man, is still functioning as, as a form of colonialism. The way that those objects are presented is deeply offensive and deeply colonial. And if you go on the tour, they will talk about how these objects, this is from a primitive people here, this is from a, a, a Polynesian uh, tribe who loved to war and that's why it's about war and literally they will just feed you all these colonial myths. Here's a dead body from a time when people found it interesting to look at dead bodies um, from Peru. Uh, just really odd as if no nostalgizing uh, colonialism as if it's not still happening, if we're not still benefiting and profiting and living in it. Um, so I was like, I don't want to be part of, of that residency unless I can have the word token on my chest. Um, and Barbie was like, great, let's do that. Um, and encouraged me to make these, these token jumpers. <laughs> And then after the residency, people started writing to me saying, I need a token jumper for this conference that I'm doing. Um, I'm going to go on the BBC. I need a token jumper. Um, and I've sold over about 150 of them now. Um, and you can see that's the author of a book called The Good Migrant that's just come out. He managed to sneak one onto the BBC. And my friend Krishna Ista, who's a fantastic performance artist, got one in a magazine about <laughs> this queer collective. Um, so yeah, that was fun. Um, and, and I guess that kind of situates Sorry for uncomfortable my practice a little bit. And I guess activism as well, I suppose, because I feel like that is a form of protest. And maybe just to explain the token jumpers a little bit more, my hope for them is to, um, is so that it becomes really obvious um, when there's only one uh, person of color, one woman, one disabled person, one, whatever the reason that you're being tokenized, so that institutions will maybe feel a bit uncomfortable and, and, and work better because it's not fun being the only person. Um, who has an understanding of your experience in an institution which has the funds and the resources and the ability and the responsibility, really, to be accessible to everybody. Um, sorry, that was very long-winded. Um, so this is uh, from a residency at a youth centre in Tooting um, about two years ago, but it's, it was meant to be a two-month residency, and I'm st it's gone, in, uh, gone into a two-year residency. Um, so I'm still a resident artist at... Um, uh, it was two different youth centres. I'm still a resident artist at um, George Shearing Youth Centre in Clapham. And one of the young people, uh, teenagers, said to me when I mentioned Black Lives Matter, she was like, oh, that's an American thing, isn't it? I was like, no, that's definitely a UK thing too. Um, and decided what I would do is I'd bring in archived photos of protests that had happened um, surrounding race. Um, and also images of people who died in police custody um, and images of local black history and project them onto big sheets of cotton and gave the young people at the youth centre different inks so that they could trace the pictures and created a mural of actually um, uh, Joy Gardner and Cherry Gross and um, actually it was hilarious. There was like a picture of Olive Morris in there as well who's a, a black activist from, from Brixton and one of the little girls in the youth centre was like, why, why are you drawing my auntie? <laughs> and it turned out it was her, her niece. Um, so it was like really interesting seeing them create this huge mural, uh, these, a series of murals, actually, um, that kind of 
allowed us to talk about uh, police brutality and talk about how racism is systemic and ongoing and how it still affects them as well. Because of course, youth centres are being closed down left, right and centre. And that youth centre is, I mean, funding is just terrible for youth centres all over London now. So I, I, it was a good way to kind of talk about how things are systemic. I'm not going to go off on a rant about youth centres. Um, and then the final thing that I wanted to show, so I make zines. One of my most popular zines is the alphabetical anthology of white middle-class liberal proverbs, um, which is an A to Z of things that white middle-class liberals say um, without realising the kind of colonial racist implications. I think that people have a tendency to kind of frame racism as like a working class problem, but it's really not. And as someone who is working class, who comes from a working class community, um, I much prefer working class racism because you know where you are with it. It's not this kind of like double speak that um, you often come into contact with in institutions like this. Um, but anyway, so just to, just to give you an idea, of, I make books basically um, and they're all illustrated. But the most recent one, which I wanted to speak about very briefly, um, is called Grounder. And also I wanted to speak about because I think it relates to the exhibition that's here. Um, so there is a gay dating app um, called Grindr, um, which people, it's a bit like Tinder, um, and people use it to, to cruise. Um, and I'm really interested in cruising as like a space for creating work. Um, it's something, you know, since Henry VIII made it illegal to, for, to, to bugger, to buggery, to bugger, um, it, uh, cruising has been something like, uh, I am not a man, I'm non-binary, my pronouns are they and them, but um, people who are not heteronormative in their sexuality have had to seek each other out in kind of strange spaces and try and be hidden and, and have these conversations and meet each other in spaces that are, are kind of hidden. Um, and I'm really interested in how that's become, I think, really much bigger and much more accessible um, in the form of these apps. Anyway, to summarize, what I've done is I've created a, a persona, um, an alien persona, which I use on Grindr. And I talk to people about Earth, and I try and find out about humans, and try and find out about human interaction. Um, and then at the end of the conversation, I say, by the way, I am creating a book, and send them some pictures, and say, with your consent, would you be up for me using the speech bubbles from this conversation um, to be part of a graphic novel? Um, and one of the people actually said, um, he was a white guy and he said, you know, it's really interesting. I, I can't think of any black conceptual artists. Um, I can think of maybe some photographers about, or pa a painter, but I can't think of any black conceptual artists. So then the book became like a love letter to black conceptual artists. So about 10 of the pages. This is actually a reference to a Jeff Donaldson painting um, called, uh, I think it's called Alashango, um, where uh, a, bo a boy is holding his hand against glass. Um, and it says glass on the frame. So Jeff Donaldson's an amazing painter um, from the Harlem Renaissance um, from America. Uh, and there's, so loads of, there's, there's references to um, Meta Warwick Fuller, the sculptor who was a project of Rodin working like 100 years ago. Um, there's lots of different references to, to black conceptual artists. And yeah, so I thought that was kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to, to speak here, because I was like, well, actually, Aaron Douglas is here, and he, ref he really influences my work. Um, is there anything else to say about Grounder? Oh yeah, so um, there's an event on Thursday, I believe, at um, Somerset House, where, so, so the, the book is not physical at the moment, it's about 50 illustrations, and what I do is I project the illustrations, 
And then I, I make music, electronic music, which kind of uh, talks about alienation. And also, just to summarize, I know I've said that like three times, but like to summarize, I think when people see you, they, they, put, they project all of these things onto your body. It's like we were kind of talking about earlier, like just to be black and be an artist, you're already making political work, or, or people assume that the work must be political. There's all these things cast onto you, but it's been actually really liberating, and I think I take great inspiration from Sun Ra, Sun Ra um, to create a persona where people can't see me, maybe, or they can't see me as what they think I am, so that maybe I'm talking about being an alien, maybe I'm talking about being queer, maybe I'm talking about being non-binary, maybe I'm talking about being black, Maybe it's something else, and like I think using science fiction has been really liberating to kind of like move outside of the things that are projected onto me. So come to Somerset House on Thursday. It's a night called Hotline, and I'll be performing music and showing some more pages from from this publication, which actually only exists in the digital world right now. So yeah, thank you. I really liked what you were saying, Sonia, about opening doors and how we, part of our history is about opening doors for each other. But what you were very generous was that you shared the work of, of Barclay Hinckley and Lamina Hibbard and suggest a couple of things about the nature of what you do in terms of collaboration, but also that you're collectively related, in a sense, in terms of the development of your own self. But this idea of becoming is really interesting. Um, this idea of reconstituting ourselves, because this is so has been so important for the past how many hundred years for us, post-emancipation of rehumanizing ourselves, and this journey is still on in terms of decolonization. We're still there, um, but becoming is to borrow Stuart's. Uh, Stuart Hall's term is really kind of crucial because that is an ongoing process still. And it was really interesting using uh, the, the, the uh, workshop in Mexico with Gomez, Gomez Penda. And I was quite interested in the representation in terms, in, in the sense that you're doing something performative if you're high, here entangled with a white guy. And so there's an experience from that perspective. And then there's another perspective of what it looks like. Yeah, so those are two kind of perspectives that are really kind of interesting. Um, so I'm summarizing here at the moment, and then we're kind of, there's some questions, general questions I wanted to ask. Um, Kimafi, um, in your work, early two paintings, there was certainly the, the kind of history of black British activism, which is not new. You know, we're in this kind of zeitgeist at the moment, but it's a long since we arrived here. In a sense, for a couple hundred years, there's been that level of resistance. But certainly in the, from the mid-20th century, there has been activism. Um, we can go back to 1958, um, Notting Hill, um, killing of Kelso Cochrane, uh, Claudia Jones, the beginning of Notting Hill Carnival. There are significant moments that mark that. What is crucial, though, in, in the style that you're using is that um, it volarizes these events. It makes them real. It brings a kind of, kind of truth to them. Um, and that's very similar to the Barclay-Hinkley painting. With that arch, 
of the black woman with the afro. It romanticizes her. It gives her, it gives her a sense of importance there. And as that's really kind of important because those events of 1985, um, Cynthia Jarrett, Joy Gardner, can easily be forgotten because they're not represented in the kind of uh, mainstream history, British history, unless it's October. I found really interesting the last piece where you're, re you're having a kind of a reclaiming, almost, of, of Moses within the Bible. That's really important in terms of our, our histories, of how important the Bible is within our histories. Um, and it's situated within Johannesburg. I was there last year. So kind of the kind of cultural politics you're talking about, I kind of connect with, particularly the creation of Johannesburg, which is only 100 years old. But the symbolism you have with the, the laptops and the, the, the pillars of stone are really interesting. Also, for me, it speaks about black romance. And that's what's going on there. And I think it's real, another sense where you kind of bring into light a kind of truth. Yeah, which we don't often see kind of represented. Jacob, I, I asked you to kind of speak last in a way because certainly your practice is of this kind of moment, I suppose, in some ways. You're using digital arts, you're using zines, you're engaged um, with a number of kind of politics of this moment. Um, certainly uh, with the group, um, sorry, you're feeling uncomfortable which is young, are really kind of challenging these institutional kind of tropes, in a way, um, in this neoliberal moment, uh, which we've always been contesting, but with new kind of strategies. Um, and activism is, is key in that, if only in terms of protest. Um, but also what comes across also is um, of a kind of intersectional kind of connections between who we are. Um, and it's critical, it's critically engaged, um, it's questioning, um, and it also connects in a way with Kamafi in terms of history. It does not allow us to, to think that, well, you know, this activism at the moment, which ref may reference Black Lives Matter, is not something new. There's a long history here. And as practitioners, we stand on the shoulders of other people who have, have, have been involved in that. Um, it also kind of connects with Sonia in this idea of collective spirit, the idea of collaboration. Um, because certainly, much less um, the group, sorry you're feeling uncomfortable, is a collective, it's collaborative. And certainly in the way you're talking, it's collaborative uh, with the magazine, it's collaborative. These things don't come about individually. Um, but in a way also kind of contest that very Eurocentric idea of the individual artist that, you know, I'm just me and I, I you know, I'm an island. So collectivity, sense of being of, of a community and opening doors for each other is, is also quite kind of crucial. What I was thinking of though, um, um, and you may want to add anything more, Michael, well, you didn't say this about, you know, the work. Um, is this question that is lurking in the back of black art and activism? Um, it's possibly a contested term. Blackness is. It's culturally, historically, politically constructed. 
we think of black arts, you know, began in, the, in America during the 1960s. Uh, I remember reading stuff by Emin Baraka talking about that. Um, but it's, there, there, there are issues around that. And I wanted to think about that in relation to your practice, possibly. Does there raise any, and is there any relevance? Is there any connection? Wow. <laughs> um, a number of things. And, I, and in a way, I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable. Um, but only in, in the sense of um, how... There's several things, and I'm, I did mention this before um, the, the kind of session began when we first kind of came to sit down and figure out what we were going to do. You know, um, black art, black activism, and the, these conjunction of terms, I think, really need to be unpicked. Um, you know, one of the questions for me when when we were first um, invited to kind of take part in, 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 in this discussion was uh, the political nature of, of black and what is projected onto it, the political nature of black art. And for me, black art, I have a very time-specific, very temporal sense of black art as a practice that emerged in the UK, particularly after the 70s, um, around... Uh, as you rightfully mentioned, Michael, a certain coming of age of growing up and being very much part of uh, uh, the British context being from birth onwards um, and the, the finding people in order to figure out, you know, why is this happening like this? Why, is, why are there these instances where, um, you know... Uh, you know, someone's house. No, why is there the Sus Laws, sorry? And I'm remembering very much when we first met, you'd done a play about the Sus Laws. I don't know if people remember the Sus Laws, uh, Stop and Search, so on and so forth. But that con the, the immediacy of the conjunction between black art politics, you know, there were, there were other artists that I was wanting, that I, kind of occurred to me to bring into this uh, discussion where you, one isn't apparent immediately of the of either the politics or necessarily that the artist is black you know and i think that we could very easily and i'm talking about artists who work in a singular way you know i don't want to give the impression that all you know we're all activists we're all collectivized we're all you know that there are different forms of practices and it's like how do we pay attention to those different forms of practice without prescribing, pre-describing them before they've emerged or, or, or pushing them into a place that um, they're not, they are, the, the works are not necessarily comfortable in. So, you know, I'm trying to, this is my uncomfortableness at this moment, is, is the, the, the prescriptive nature of if, if you're black, that you have to be political that it's expected, that somehow you're there as, you know, to, to quote someone like Kabina Mercer, the burden of representation. So, you know, in, in thinking about the, the three images that I put together, I was, I was particularly thinking about the burden of representation, actually, how one is expected to be a representative voice for, you know, however many millions of people there might be in the world. You know, and that these, these, are, these are problematics that 
artists are constantly having to negotiate, you know, as well as speak their, the truth of their own voice, whether that's their own voice with others or their own voice, their own inner voice. Sorry, this is me. I'll get off the Please. Um, yeah, I was going to say, like, it, it, it's really hard to, to not project that onto black art because of the way that it's framed in, in regards to, you know, the Artist and Empire exhibition at Tate, walking around the exhibition, sorry, to bring it up, um, it, 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 it really upset me how it was like these huge dripping in gold, much like this garish ceiling um, frames uh, with these like po-faced colonial masters standing next to their loot from like Polynesia or Australia or whatever. And it was like, and the, the description of the exhibition was actually facing up to Britain's colonial past, uh, facing up to <laughs> Britain's colonial past, colonial past. <laughs> it was up Britain's colonial past for sure. Um, but it was a, uh, it, it, um, it, it seemed like it was framing itself as being critical of colonialism. But the only criticism I saw of colonialism was in the black art um, and the, the art from Asian artists um, at the end of the exhibition. And after walking around an exhibition full of Artists, art, beautiful artworks that were made by uh, black and brown artists from around the world that were listed, unnamed African artists, next to these really massive paintings of these really rich people whose families are now running the country, um, or you know, in the members club of the RA. Um, it was quite difficult to walk through all of that. Um, and when I saw your painting, lean back and what, lean back and think of what made Britain so great, I laughed. And it was like, it's like, it was, it was a relief. I was like, thank God there's like work in here that even if it's like a, just a, a roll of the eye, it's still like facing up. It, it is actually like facing up to this or at least like, m but maybe not facing up to it, but like it felt like it was in confrontation. I have to say that that work came out of a very particular politically uh, consciousness raising m moment of which, you know, were the ones talking about Lubaina, a whole range of artists, Michael, there, you know, there was a particular consciousness-raising moment which was saying, how did we get here? You know, and actually that there were very, very urgent questions about, about a context in Britain at a particular moment. So uh, that work... Yes, that work was by me, but it was coming out of a, a whole series of feminist debates about painting and not painting, but drawing, because drawing is a, pre a preparation for painting and doesn't have the same kind of, it doesn't, it's, it, it, it kind of challenges that value system around painting. It's also coming out of wallpaper design and the question about design and women artists always being crafts rather than painters. And it comes out also out of the kind of uh, post-colonial discussions that were emerging around um, a kind of uh, uh, black consciousness. So, you know, all of those things aren't, you know, in, in some ways, those were, all of those things were feeding into me making work at that moment in that particular way. Now, I understand, I understand what you're saying about the artist and, and my own, my own um, thoughts about the Tate, bless them, is that, um, you know, they, they have a real, they have a conundrum about uh, and I, this is over. This is over a number of exhibitions that they've they've held, where the black subject has to somehow pledge allegiance in a particular subvert, uh, kind of subjugated way and not speak back. 
you know, and, it, and, and they, as an, as a, in terms of the things that they've put together, they've not found a way to actually address and face the, 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 the voice coming back at them. And that exhibition is a prime example of them knowing, they know that they've got to somehow address these questions because it's everywhere around them. Yet they are stuck in that place of, of you know, of, of power. You know, how, what to do with their power. They can't let it go. They can't, you know, the, so the figure can't speak about, it can't speak freely, and it can't speak in an, an attacking voice. It has to always be subjugated to being the noble, savage, or, you know, the, you know it's, it has to be subjugated. That's their particular conundrum. I don't think they can get out of it yet. It makes me think of the, the Fred Moten quote that um, the only, I think he's talking about universities, but he says that um, the only uh, legitimate relationship, I'm paraphrasing, but the only legitimate relationship to an institution is a criminal one. Um, because I think if, if you think about where that is going, for me, it feels like a codependent relationship, an unhealthy codependent relationship is happening between black artists and institutions where you have to, it's not good for either of us. If, if, I have to, if I have to be this person, you have to be that. And it's like, maybe, you know. Sorry, uh, could I get, come of back? Course. I have to come I'm back to this. Because one of the things for me that emerged in the 1980s, particularly, and I, I can't, like, I'm, I'm not able to kind of trace its lineage, is a, was a constant discussion about the black subject, the white institution. I'm sick and tired mm. of this argument. I'm so sick of it because what it does is it eclipses the work. And it's, a, it, it's, it's, be, it's become a kind of fetish, one could say. I 100% agree with you. And I, I wouldn't call the, it the, the white institution because I think that invisibilizes the, the tons of work that's gone into it from black individuals and artists and, and people. But the way you just described the institutions is what I'm talking about. Is yeah, but the point is, for me, is whether one gets tripped up by being at the Royal Academy or whether one gets tripped up by being at the Tate. Or, and you know, there are, there are, it's, I think it's, re, it's a complex on a variety of sides of this relate, set of relationships that somehow we've stopped talking about the work yeah, and how the work is speaking, speaking to power. Does that make sense? If we constantly go to that place of, uh, you know, what's the black subject's relationship to the, really, the people are saying the white institution, then we can't get out of that conundrum. We can't. I've not, I've, I've heard it rehearsed really regularly for 30 odd years now. Kim Murphy, go on. I, I wanted to, to jump in with a, a, a subject which um, I think is, uh, is pertinent and um, and really, it's, uh, it's, it's probably, it may, it may sound um, frivolous, but to me, it's not frivolous, and which is the subject of beauty. And um, it, maybe it speaks a little bit to the sort of place we're in, which has been, it's an attempt at a certain kind of beauty, this architecture. Um, and, um, and I think for my, I suppose for my practice, perhaps one way of, well, for me, one sort of way I think of 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 getting out of this um, unhealthy binary. To me, is the celebration of beauty, and that's where the perhaps uh, artists like Barclay Hendricks 
kind of comes in. And I would say that I, I think it was you that probably introduced me to Barclay Hendry. I, I don't think I knew <coughs> of his practice before you mentioned him to me um, some years back. But um, certainly in, in thinking of that as a, as a sort of mentoring, um, and perhaps also as he's in the room, in Kashana Bari's sort of um, work, thinking about beauty in terms of, um, you know, uh, uh, design and textiles and these kind of things. So I suppose for me, it, it's it maybe it's a bit of a, a old school or a, a, like I say, perhaps a, a slightly frivolous thing. But for me, one thing that I really want to try to get across in my work is a celebration of beauty, physical beauty, emotional beauty, that which is, um, there was a, a work which is in the exhibition, it's almost number, I think it's number two in the exhibition here um, by Aaron Douglas, it's um, Aspiration, it's called. And I think it's a, a beautiful word. And the, the image is full of beauty, there's a sort of these very um, ethereal kind of figures, a sort of radiant light. Uh, it might seem like a, a cliche, and I suppose it is a set of cliches, but from my perspective, th that has to be part of the conversation. Um, so um, in the work uh, the, which you know, relates to the, the, the Moses and, and his wife, it's a celebration of love, as you mentioned, a romance sense of beauty, um, which is internal, which is to do with an internal strength and a celebration of that. And I just wonder whether that is maybe something which we shouldn't let, let go of and should sort of encourage in what we're trying to achieve. I think that's a really important Speaking point, Kim Stand up for beauty. beauty. And thinking about how it's really important uh, to thinking of Stuart Hall again to return into these representations and contesting them in, the mean, in terms of reconstructing self. Because really we're talking about difference as well here, aren't we? But one of the things we don't often talk about is joy and pleasure. And how, where do we derive our joy and pleasure? Through beauty in terms of what we do and what we see. And I wanted to put that out there because in terms of work, and I remember in the 1970s under the Royal Court, and, it, and, and, and we were influenced by other things going on at the time. You know, it was punk, it was feminism, there was other things. There was also a sense that black was politically inscribed in, i.e., you know, it was like black, Asian, Turkish, we were, there were alliances being formed. Um, but the frame was crucial in the sense that the royal court was interested in in my work possibly because it was rebellious and revolutionary, as, as if the only way I could exist as an artist, is if I talked about race, but talked about race in a way that was framed by the institution. You know? Um, and it's still there, in a way. But that's not all of us. There are other things. And joy and pleasure is something else in terms of beauty that's really important that we don't often talk about. I think that, for me, one of the greatest sources of joy and pleasure, I take no greater pleasure than seeing like the, art, the artistry in like clapbacks, in, especially in black Twitter um, and on social media and just like, but also in artworks, um, you know, those, you were just saying you're in South Africa recently, that, that collective, Tokolo Collective, they, who they were invited quite tokenistically to be part of this 
exhib this exhibition and they put a public toilet inside of the... That made me laugh so much. And I've seen so many other um, artists uh, protesting um, in, hilarious, in hilarious ways. But I actually think, like... Um, the internet, like the, just 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 Twitter, like memes. I think like the way that people, um, I think it's, it's so similar to, to to a lot of the techniques used in, um, in in painting of referencing narratives and taking things and and um, it's quite some of the some of the, the the memes, the little images that people make to summarize their positionality in regards to the world and the things that they're dealing with are so f clever and hilarious and make me laugh every single day. Um, and are quite beautiful in, 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 their, in their simplicity. So I don't know why I brought that up. Well, I would, I would, I would um, continue that line of thought by thinking about your token T-shirts uh, as, uh, as part of the legacy of someone like Adrian Piper. Oh, of course. You know, and how, how, uh, how a gesture can change the dynamics of a space. Mm -hmm. You know, and at the same time be hilarious. You know, and I do think that that... And that's what I want to talk about, actually, mm -hmm. is how, 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 uh, how a gesture can just do that in a way that is simple and extremely complex at the same time and changes, actually, how we might relate to each other. Does that make... Yeah, definitely. And thinking of kind of gestures, I'm forming something in my mind here about gestures. There's that sense of where certain gestures are legitimised and others are just seen as rebellious and back-chatting, mm. a bit too uppity. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in terms of the T-shirt the with token, you're sensing people's kind of response to that. What do you get in, I, in kind uh, of their responses to it? It's, it's, three, it's three things, and, it, and I forgot to say this. So Barbie Asante, um, who's a great art practitioner, artist, uh, she said that how she, she said like how can we infect a space um like if you're going to be doing protest if you're going to be standing up to white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchal ableism you're going to get tired because that shit is everywhere um and you can't expect to do that like all the time but if you can do a gesture or something that infects it you know it sends a ripple like you know maybe if i if you've wear a token jumper somewhere next time they won't have tokenistically invite one one person i mean i'm plugging my stuff now but like you know what i mean like it it, it hope and, and lots of artists do that uh, it was adrian piper with the calling cards like you didn't really know you might not notice but i'm actually black and that racist joke you made not very funny or, or or a simplified version of that so the next time someone goes to make a racist joke they might think shit who's listening or maybe they won't make a racist joke because they realize it's a disgusting thing to do so but in my mind, when you were talking about that work, I was also imagining a room of 150 people all wearing token, the token T-shirt, in a room together. And what does that, what does that do? Yeah. Wow, I haven't thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> How do you mean? Like... Well, as you were talking, it was just kind of thinking, oh, did they meet up? And is there... You know, I was just going on a bit of a journey. <laughs> Um, you know, if, if, there, if there's not one, but there's two, and there's suddenly ten, and they just fill a room, I wonder what then happens. Then the, 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 the point when there's ten tokens, like, in a room, or, like, maybe, like, the whole room, then you will need to take them off. And, oh. like, we won! I'd like to see that. I would love to see that, definitely. But I would hope they would... By the time it got to a point where there was a whole room of people wearing token jumpers, no one would feel tokenized. Everyone would feel like they were all... Welcome, 
you know, they were all genuinely welcome. It wasn't like a meaningless gesture. I would, it would be interesting if all of the people here had token T-shirts. I wondered how some people might feel more tokenized than others. Because there's always a hierarchy going on. But that's an important conversation that they can have amongst themselves, you know? I've given one away as a raffle prize the other day, a, a fundraiser for Decolonize Fest, which is happening next month. Amazing black and brown punk bands from the UK, everyone should go. Um, and I gave a token jumper away as a prize. And it, it was a raffle, so a white guy won it. And I was like, oh. Like, <laughs> but you know, he, there's loads of reasons why white people might be tokenized in different ways. It's not necessarily a black and white conversation uh, at all. And that's what I'm really trying to get into with, with Grounder. Like, I'm, really, I'm tired of talking about race as well, actually. I want to talk about, you know, when you say a room full of people all wearing tokens, I'm like, wow, I want to think about spaces I haven't seen before. Mm. Um, I want to, um, you know, and that's why I think it's interesting working in, in youth centers as well, because it's like, Loads of really cool stuff happens in here, but it's not like you don't see it. And it's not deemed as, as important creativity. It's, it's deemed as, you know, their, their protests are, are often deemed as delinquency and not important enough for us to put any money into those important institutions that are a massive part of British history. Um, so, yeah, I'm really interested in, in not talking about race. I'm sick of talking about race, honestly. And that's the funny thing people think, because you're back, you want to talk about racism. No. <laughs> Boring. I don't want to talk about racism at all. Um, sorry, Brandon. I mean, that's a really good point, because it speaks to something you mentioned earlier about that's elusive self. Being elusive. I just want to be an artist today. Mm -hmm. It happens to be, yeah? I'm just making work and do what I want to do and having that sense of freedom. Oh, it's romantic, but hey, other people are entitled to that and have that. I, did a, I, did, I curated a show a couple of years ago, um, a few years ago, actually more than a couple, time does fly. Um, and it, the title was Happening to Be. And the notion, it was in, the notion of the title was very much this idea that, because I've heard people say that they just happen to be one thing or another. And I, I'm very resistant to that um, idea that one just happens to be an artist, or one happens to be black or, or non-binary or whatever it is that one is espousing. Um, I think there's a lot more purpose in people's sort of existence and that one always has to, one always has to kind of um, to own, if you like, an identity, and, and in owning it, one is then able to reshape it, remold it in a certain way. And I'm always a little bit suspicious when people are just, they just, they, they attribute their, um, their, their position, their place in the world to some, to just an accident. Because I think our society is a lot more, um, I suppose, purposed than, than that. Well, there's also a sense in terms of artists what we, 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 we talk about the product after it's done. Mm. And um, there's a kind of fantasy there. But what about the process? The process of making? What is the context? Um, because it's much more complex, much more messy than that, much more contradictory than that. Um, you want to kind of speak to the context of some of the work that you've kind of created. So, for instance, the, the, the piece... Um, is it Cynthia Jarrett? Mm. <clears throat> what was going on? What was the context for that? Which for one? The first one or the second one? The, I'm sure, the, oh, either. That one or that one? 
So for this one, it's a twenty-year process, right? Yeah. So there's twenty years between the two, or, but or strictly speaking, eighteen years, I suppose. But but I think um, for me, the context of this one was I felt very. Um, I felt that actually I didn't really want to be an artist in in a sense. I felt that it was a it was a waste of my time, if I'm if I'm honest. Um, because I felt that by in making this kind of work that there would that there was no audience, there was no interest. That my not all, but I felt that you know some of my tutors and I think some of my peers were had no interest in this kind of addressing of a social situation. So for me, that con it, it was, and even the the methodology which I was using, the sort of drawing, um, when I, I I was more of a painter, I suppose, was a, a sense of myself distancing myself from my practice, if you like. And so I think the context of then doing it, revisiting this subject 20 years later, was partly to do with um, really reaffirming my, um, you know, sense of being a, a creative, a creative person. And I don't know. It's really um, there was there was it wasn't really even a nostalgia. It's maybe more of a, a kind of a horror. Um, while I, while I was making the, the the series of those works, there was a particular work which I, I'm not shown here, but it was t to do with the shooting of Cherry Gross. And while I was actually painting Cherry Gross, because when I when Cherry Gross was shot. Um, I lived about 100 meters from her, just down the road. I didn't know her. Um, but then while I was doing this painting 20 years later, another of my neighbors, Jean-Charles de Menezes, was shot by police. And he lived about 100 meters away. And, and what was really dif difficult about that was that when they were, um, they were, and, and they were hunting for these terrorists who had murdered or tried tried to murder people on the underground system. They were in their frenzy looking for someone who looked a bit like me. And they got the wrong guy who just happened to be one of my neighbors. And that's quite a scary <laughs> position to be in. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Taking a bus, which I would take to the tube station that I would take, and he's completely innocent. He just happens to be maybe someone who doesn't quite fit the picture of a proper Englishman, you know? And we're talking about a show about the 1930s and thinking about context. I don't think we can escape talking about this political context. We're in an interesting moment right now, politically. I just want to speak to the fact that we're in a moment where, you know, we're talking about the freedom of movement and that being curtailed. For who? For those people who are not deemed to be properly British. And what is that? What is the potential? We're in the, in the fact that our government hasn't guaranteed the rights of three or four million um, EU citizens in this country, they're thinking, that, or the, the threat is that these will be deported. So are we in the age of mass deportations? Is that where we're, we're, we're heading towards? Is that what this election is going to sort of rubber stamp? So for me, the context of, how, of, where, of, where, of where we make art, I can't escape it, you know? And so 
you know, I, I think that the, the, what was really fascinating about this show and going around it, that after the full show, was how deeply engaged these artists were in the moment of their society and thinking about the depression and thinking about the starvation that was taking place in the United States in the 1930s, the, the desperation of the, of the ordinary people, the, the racial intolerance, the lynchings. It's an incredible show and it's sort of a side of um, American art that, I don't know, gets lost amidst all the, the flim-flam of, I don't know, I, I won't even go, go into flim-flam. Can I ask you a question? Um, so, yeah, one of the, the, the pieces of work in the, the show, uh, Aaron Douglas's, um, I don't know what it's called, actually. Yeah, Aspiration. All, Aspiration, yeah, yeah, sorry. But all of his work, well, loads of it, does this thing where it kind of builds up all of the different achievements of... Uh, it shows you this, this journey of how much like, black people have built America um, from, and, and, and parts of Africa, and, and it, it, it kind of has a sense of pride. Mm. But I think when people talk about black history, they, always, they generally talk about African-American history. Mm. But your work, um, I saw a painting that you did recently in uh, Nottingham mm. um, of Nanny of the Maroons. That's right, yeah. And um, Caribbean history is like, so loaded with really amazing um, acts of protest and mm. stuff. And that's the first time I've ever seen something of Caribbean history painted so beautifully and so like powerfully. And I just kind of be interested to hear what the relationship between your that that painting and 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 uh, and these works and and the work of Aaron Douglas, which I feel like ins might ins be inspiration to you. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, I think I think like returning to I think one of the when when I was first at. Goldsmiths back in the 1980s, one of the problems that we had and one of the reasons why a group of black students got together and petitioned the um, authorities to bring in some black teachers and, and it was, I'm not saying that's a reason that Sonia came to teach, but yeah, subsequent to that, <laughs> subsequent to that, Sonia Boyce suddenly appeared on, in our tutor list, which is fantastic. But one of the things that we sort of ha suffered from in those days is literally, um, I didn't, I'd never heard of Aaron Douglas or Jacob Lawrence or, um, uh, you know, all of the sort of Faith Ringgold and all of the, um, the artists of the 40s, 50s, 60s, etc. and going back even further into Samela Lewis in the sort of 19th century, the amazing sculptor. N none of that was there for us. So actually, there was a sense as a young person, as a teenager then, I was the first black artist in, in England, maybe. And of course, then coming into London, I very soon realized, and no, I was part of a much wider movement. So I just think that question of inspiration is really important. Um, and I think one of the things that this event, and hopefully w that we can do in our work, and I think really interesting hearing what you're saying as well about the people that inspire you is to bring this kind of knowledge that there is uh, a tradition, a series of traditions which one can sort of draw upon. You know, so in doing that series which you mentioned, um, Queens of the Undead, I was, I had by then become aware of um, particularly Jacob Lawrence and his work that he did, um, sort of thinking about heroines like Harriet Tubman and and Toussaint Louverture, and of course Lebena Himid. So. I think for now, um, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm thinking that we're in a moment when people like Yinka and, 
and Sonia in the Royal Academy, and there's a, a sort of a layer of professional, highly respected, highly decorated artists, that younger black artists have got something more to go on, to work with, a, a sort of uh, more material to play against. I'm going to stop there. Can I just quickly respond to what you're saying about doors of perception? Like, so one of the first paintings, which I mentioned already when you come in, um, by Aaron Douglas, and it's visible in all of his works, is that what his, his technique is that he'll paint something happening in a, in a layer of oil, and, and then he'll paint, uh, or it might be acrylic actually, and then it, it, a silhouette, and then he'll paint again something behind it. It might be a mundane. So one of his images that I really like is, is a mother showing her two children, a black mother showing her two children, the globe. And then behind it, in the layer behind, you see black people building a bridge. And then behind that, you see black people building the Empire State Building. And behind that, you see black people building the pyramids. And it like creates a door that, that turns an object into, oh, but that came from here, and that came from here, and that came from here, and that came from here, which suddenly just is, is, is opens a, a door of perception which turns something mundane, or maybe not that mundane, into something really powerful. And I think that's definitely visible in your painting of Nanny of the Maroons, which I recommend people see, because it's, 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 she's doing something. And it's like something that most people, I think a lot of people know about Nanny of the Maroons from Jamaica, but people haven't seen a Jamaican hero painted in that way. It opens a door of perception, so suddenly something that we've heard about can be seen in a completely new way. And that's what I'm excited about seeing. I'm excited about seeing people opening more and more of those, those doors of perception so we can see things we've seen before in a completely new way. Thank you, Jacob. That's a really good note to stop. And I'd like to thank Sonia, Kimafi, Jacob. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.